You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. The U.S. Department of Equal Opportunity and Employment, the EEOC, and the U.S. Department of Labor's Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, the OFCCP, have recently launched a new initiative aimed at reimagining nationwide hiring practices with a goal of advancing equal opportunity on a nationwide level. On today's show, we're talking with representatives from both agencies to find out more about this innovative program. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome to Workplace Perspective, Adaku and Maya. Thanks, Teresa. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm so happy to have you both here, and I'm really excited to talk about the initiative. But before we get started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit, our listeners a little bit about what you do and who you are? Uh, let's start with Let's start with the Daku. Well, hi. Okay, so I can go first, as you asked for. Um, my name is Adaku Anyaka Crawford, and I'm an attorney advisor um, at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the office of the chair, Charlotte A. Burroughs. Um, and the EEOC, um, we are the federal agency that enforces um, laws that make it illegal to discriminate on a host of traits. Um, it's a long list, so hold on. So um, the EEOC enforces a law that makes it illegal to discriminate based on race, color, religion, sex, which includes pregnancy status, gender identity, and sexual orientation, as well as national origin, age if you're 40 and older, uh, as well as genetic or genetic disability or genetic information. I and it's really important um, to read that entire list because there's a lot of uh, protections that workers have in the work value. Hi, I'm Maya Ragu. I'm the Deputy Director for Policy at the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, or OFCCP, at the U.S. Department of Labor. At OFCCP, we protect workers, we promote diversity, and enforce the law. OFCCP is a federal civil rights agency, and we ensure that companies that do business with the federal government are complying with their non-discrimination and affirmative action obligations. Um, we enforce several different authorities that prohibit discrimination on the basis of a number of characteristics, including race, color, sex, gender identity, religion, disability, status as a protected veteran, and others. Um, and we're really excited to be here with you and with our colleagues at the EESC. I'm excited to have both of you here. Um, I want to hear about the initiative. So it's called the Higher Initiative. Um, but tell us about what it is, Maya. 
Sure. So HIRE stands for Hiring Initiative to Reimagine Equity. It's a multi-year joint initiative between our agency, OFCCP, and the EEOC. As you heard, we're both federal workplace civil rights agencies, and although we have different and complementary missions, we're united in the goal of advancing equal employment opportunity. And through HIRE, our agencies are engaging with a wide variety of stakeholders in pursuit of a common goal. We want to help address key hiring and recruiting challenges that employers are facing in this moment that prevent workers from accessing good jobs. Adaku is going to speak more about why we launched this initiative and why we launched it when we did. But we wanted to meet the moment that we're in and, some, and support employers and workers as we're dealing with these hiring and recruitment challenges. Our goal is to help employers cultivate a diverse pool of talented and qualified workers during this critical time and to help workers access those good jobs. So as I said, through the initiative, we're engaging employers, workers, researchers, and other experts and fostering dialogues about how we can reassess longstanding hiring practices that might initially seem fair, but when you take a closer look are actually excluding qualified workers for the wrong reasons. Um, so for example, by employers imposing unnecessary degree requirements, that ends up excluding a huge pool of qualified and talented workers that employers could be hiring. And we'll talk more about that today. But in this initial stage, we posted a number of convenings and listening sessions to take a look at organizations' policies and practices, to look at what are the barriers to recruitment and hiring? Um, what are some concrete solutions to remove those barriers, to promote effective job-related hiring and recruitment practices? And what are promising practices that have left to success stories in different industries and communities? So really our agencies are committed to helping ensure that as our country is recovering from the pandemic and now we have these historic infrastructure investments that we're building an inclusive economy that works for everyone. That's great. Um, what prompted the agencies to come together? Cause it's, I'm seeing a lot of that now actually. A lot of, there's a lot of interagency stuff going on with enforcement. So we're seeing a lot of that in employment. Um, which I think is really interesting and it makes a lot of sense. There's no reason for the agencies to be siloed um, for the most part, but sort of what brought the agencies together on this particular issue? Yeah, so I can take that. As, as Maya noted, we both have a mission to enforce our nation's EEO laws. So that's equal employment opportunity laws. Um, and it just made sense, particularly because, you know, we know that America works best when we expand opportunity and everyone has a chance to contribute to the country's economic success. What the last few years have shown us um, in really stark reality is that there are various systems at play that have denied that opportunity repeatedly and historically for certain groups of people and primarily people who have historically marginalized by various um, discrimination in the workplace and in all aspects of American life. Um, so we've seen that with um, the COVID-19 um, pandemic uh, in various ways. So the disproportionate racial and gender impact on, um, you know, Black, immigrant, Indigenous, and other communities, um, you know, the number of women who had to leave the workforce because of inflexible workplace uh, policies. 
um, the proportion of, you know, people of color in low paid frontline jobs, um, even the dynamic of employers suddenly be able, being able to offer accommodations such as telework. Um, these are accommodations that, you know, people with disabilities had repeatedly asked for and been denied. And so I think the a pandemic really put um, on display the inequities that existed in the workplace and um, really um, drove people to, um, you know, highlight that these things aren't really fair and they're, they have been denying opportunities um, to people. Um, we also saw, you know, another thing that happened within the last few years are, are the large widespread uh, protests that occurred in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. And these actions and this violence, um, people recognize that they stand out of systemic inequities. Um, and that this is a time to really demand racial justice from those who have, you know, a stake in our economic um, security. Um, and that we all have a role to play in addressing these systemic barriers, including employers. And one of the most powerful tools that employers have is their ability to address some of these longstanding practices um, that are systemic in nature um, and increase diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, or, I, or DEIA efforts in the workplace. Um, as Maya mentioned, a lot of these um, practices, we don't even know that they are discriminatory or have this impact um, for historically marginalized groups. And that's part of what HIRE is to do, is to ask folks to uh, take a look at these practices to see if they're creating these barriers for um, people who have been historically shut out of um, equal, uh, equal employment opportunities. Um, and we also hear often from employers that they have an interest in boosting their DEI efforts, especially over the last few years. And they wanna make sure they're doing it in a robust and effective way while not running afoul of you know, federal anti-discrimination laws. And so hire endeavors to provide employers the tools to do just that. You've said so much that I just find so interesting. I'm trying to shift through what I wanna mention. What stuck in my brain when you were talking Partly because I just gave a presentation yesterday and I was talking uh, about California law under the Fair Employment and Housing Act. We were talking about reasonable accommodations. And I was laughing because when I, when I, the last time I gave part of this uh, presentation, it was novel because in the California regs, part of an accommodation, they actually put can be remote work. And I remember how controversial that was. It's people like, oh no, you know. And I'm giving this yesterday. I'm like, obviously, remote work, right? Obviously, an accommodation. We've come so far and we've realized, you know, what a simple thing that actually, uh, in most circumstance, not every circumstance, but how quickly we were able to pivot to it when we needed to. Um, right. Which I think is really interesting when you talk about what is a reasonable accommodation and being creative in that. Um, you just have to wonder how creative people were being prior to the pandemic. Um, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say that's that's part of why we wanted to launch higher when we did is we're seeing these sort of shifts in workplace culture, our culture at large as a result of the pandemic and other sorts of dynamics. So things that employers previously, you know, would not have contemplated or would have thought this is too expensive or it's not practical to implement, you know, that 
sort of norm has completely shifted in the last two and a half years. And so it is a time where we're seeing an increased um, sort of appreciation and willingness on the part of employers to reconsider their practices, their workplace culture, and really think about making the kinds of investments that will result in sort of significant changes um, that ultimately will strengthen, you know, their workplace culture, their processes, and will be good for business at the same time. And so it's provided a really important opening to start having these kinds of conversations and a willingness to try to sort of experiment with different things um, in a way that I think is really important and really exciting as well, not just for companies, but for workers too. I agree. I think, you know, we talk a lot on the show about the workplace of the future. And I, one of the things positive things uh, came out of the pandemic, one of the few, um, I think is that it brought the future to us much faster than we originally anticipated. And I agree completely that this is a wonderful time for this initiative, which is what caught my eye and uh, what wanted, uh, what brought me uh, to seeking out y'all to see if you could come and tell us more about it. And um, we're getting the take a break signal. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, more on the higher initiative. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Take a step toward bringing our country and community together. Start a meaningful conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us, and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking about the recently launched joint effort, the higher initiative between the EEOC and the, I'm going to screw up the acronym, FC, uh, FCPCC? Close. OFCCP. I knew I'd mess that up. I knew I'd mess that up. (laughs) All right. So let's talk a little bit about, kind of shift focus a little bit and talk about, you've already, it's been active. You've had a couple of roundtables so far. So you're, you're actually out talking to people. What sort of things have you been talking about so far, both on the, um, on the employer side and the employee side. So, Jocky, uh, you want to start with the um, employee side? Yeah, sure. So, yes, as you said, um, so far we've had our launch event in January and then two roundtables. Um, the first one was in April and it was titled Untapped Potential Reimagining Equity for Workers with Gaps Employment. Um, and that roundtable, um, we convened a panel of experts um, from um, the workers' perspective to discuss the unique skills that workers with resume gaps can bring to the workplace. We also talked about the barriers they face when re-entering the workforce and then promising practices to improve recruiting and hiring for those job seekers. And we thought this was an important topic um, to highlight because, you know, we know that employers are confronting changing labor market dynamics, um, and many are searching for strategies to recruit and hire from new and diverse talent sources. Um, again, um, if there's one thing that I want to reemphasize is that there are employment practices that have been long ingrained that are narrowing the um, um, talent pool and creating a 
less diverse type of goal. And so one of those practices is screening out people with gaps in their resume or employment history. Um, these practices often screen out otherwise qualified applicants um, from under, underrepresented groups. So that could be caregivers who are disproportionately women, um, people with long-term disabilities who had to leave because of a sudden illness or um, injury, um, formerly incarcerated individuals who are disproportionately people of color, and also older workers who um, are maybe re-entering the workforce after uh, a period of early retirement uh, or retirement just generally. Um, and so changing this one practice provides a like double whammy of finding workers amidst a quote unquote labor shortage um, um, while also diversifying the um, applicant pool. And so in that round table, one of the things that we talked about were that there are skills that can often be gained during these periods of unemployment. I know, like, once I became a mother, you know, I knew that I had the ability to multitask. And I think that all caregivers also have that ability that can also translate into the workplace. Um, you know, formerly incarcerated individuals often, like, um, are able to get um, training and certifications while incarcerated. So they come in um, back into the workplace with skills that employers can use. Um, you know, one thing that I, I think we've touched upon is that, you know, workers with disabilities, um, they have to navigate things a little bit differently. And they also create and push policies that make the workplace better for everybody else as well as um, just them, themselves. Um, and then, of course, the experience that older workers bring to the workplace um, decades of experience um, and also like soft skills that, you know, younger workers may not have had the chance to develop yet. Um, we also highlighted different recruitment practices, um, you know, emphasize the, the um, importance of not just relying on um, word of mouth to um, recruit and taking advantage of, you know, job boards that actually reach out to these um, various um, underrepresented communities. Um, and so, you know, I'm really happy to that, you know, this this round, this is one of our first uh, substantive roundtables um, that does a double whammy of, you know, um, exposing a hidden talent pool to employers while also highlighting a diversity effort. And so, Maya, I think that you can talk about our more recent roundtable that we had in June. Yeah, thanks, Adaku. We held our third public roundtable in June to explore how employers have integrated skills-based hiring into their talent acquisition practices and how it's helped them remove barriers to hiring and retaining workers. And because we're civil rights agencies, the discussion had a particular focus on how that helped drive equal employment opportunity. So in case some of your listeners are not familiar with skills-based hiring, this is an approach that focuses on people's practical skills and experience and performance instead of degree requirements or formal qualifications. So in the hiring process, it focuses on what people know how to do and not where or how they learn to do it. And we wanted to focus on this specific strategy because, as you've heard, despite the strong demand for workers right now, many qualified job seekers are facing challenges in accessing good jobs. 
And in many cases, this is because of things like unnecessary degree requirements or overly narrow prior experience requirements for positions. Eliminating these requirements allows employers to better identify and select skilled workers from a diverse range of backgrounds that employers maybe weren't necessarily connected to before or weren't necessarily thinking about. So let me give you an example. We know from our colleagues in the Department of Labor that formal degree requirements, like for a bachelor's degree, can exclude many skilled veterans from access to good jobs. You know, one of the things they were talking to us about is the fact that particularly for people who are sort of earlier in their service in the military, um, who may or who may be younger, many of them don't come in with um, a four-year bachelor's degree. Yet, over the course of their military service, they develop an incredible range of critical skills and, ex and experiences, including leadership skills. But when they leave the service and they're trying to find civilian jobs, they may be screened out of a lot of opportunities because they don't have their four-year degree requirement in spite of their vast array of other really critical skills. So that's an example of how employers are losing out on a huge pool of incredibly talented workers without maybe realizing how that affects that particular community. And it's not just formal degree requirements too, you know, there are many companies that are recognizing that they are missing out on a lot of candidates simply because they don't have the exact prior experience that someone has chosen to put in a job description. You know, the research on prior experience doesn't really support the idea that someone with more experience is necessarily going to be better than someone with a longer tenure or more experience. And that may sound counterintuitive, but if you think about how someone happens to get into a job, you know, it might be luck or serendipity, or maybe they just happen to have access to a particular software program. So they have to have those skills. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to outperform someone who comes into a job without that. So it really is about a shift in perspective and practice for employers um, and understanding and taking a hard look at job descriptions and saying, you know, what does this job, what are the knowledge, skills, and abilities that are really needed to succeed in this job? What is job related and what is not? That can really help expand the pool of people to consider. And this is something that we had a really rich and engaging discussion about during our public roundtable. You know, we had these fantastic speakers with so much expertise coming at this from different perspectives, people who have studied the research and data and have seen how you can identify workers who maybe are in lower paid jobs, and, but that they can take the skills in those jobs and transition into a better paying job that creates a ladder and a pathway um, into higher skilled and higher paying jobs as well. And we heard from a tech company that is engaging in really creative recruitment practices that are community-based. So they're going into the community and assessing, you know, we could create a pathway to these jobs and create jobs, but are there, once people have those skills, are there jobs in the community so that they can stay in their community and work there? So they're developing pre-apprenticeship and apprenticeship programs with important wraparound services like access to childcare so that for women who have never worked in construction or in tech, for example, they can 
enter these pre-apprenticeship and apprenticeship programs and stay in them without having to worry about childcare or other issues. Um, and we also spent some time sort of talking about how do you make, if you're switching to skills-based hiring, what are some of the legal challenges that you might encounter? What are some of the practical challenges and how do you navigate them and explore examples from companies that had navigated those issues? How do you get buy-in from your leadership to make this switch? Because it is a big shift in how you do your hiring and recruitment. Um, at the same time, there are some, you can start with some small steps, like looking at your job descriptions or maybe eliminating a degree requirement and then move and build out a larger program that maybe takes more resources and time. Um, but know, yeah. One of the things you mentioned, it keeps coming back to me is the idea that, and, and I'm wondering if it will help change going to skill-based, right? So there's sort of that gender, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's proven or not, where most women, myself included, when I'd ever look at a job description, if I didn't meet all of the, if I didn't tick all the boxes, I'd be like, well, I'm not qualified and I wouldn't apply. And I think there's a gender difference in where I don't think that typically men see it the same way. If, if they don't tick all the boxes, like, yeah, I'm going to go for it anyway. And I wonder if that if if a switch to a skill more skill based would help address that sort of issue and make you more comfortable coming in and saying these are my skills, not necessarily ticking a bunch of boxes. Do, do you think it'll have an impact? Yeah, I can I can go and then hand it to Adaku. So I think that's a great point, and and I think the answer is yes. It is a shift in mindset and culture on both sides, right? On the point on the side of the employer and the perspective of job seekers, and it goes back to something Adaku was describing about our second roundtable about you know screening out people with gaps in experience. If women, for example, are taking time away from the workforce to be caregivers. That involves a multitude of skills. Adaku said, you know, you learn to multitask very well. And there are all kinds of skills you develop that are translatable to the workplace. You know, time management, you know, um, managing multiple priority projects at the same time. And I think it's a question of are employers willing to look at those skills in a different context or, you know, sort of skills you developed in an adjacent kind of job and see how they can be translated um, into their workplace for the job that they need and the skills that they need. I love it. Adaku, as we, as we're getting the wrap up signal here, can you give us your final thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I do really want to emphasize something that Maya said, which is that it's it requires employers to change their practices and to be open to um, people talking about their skills that were gained outside of the workplace. Um, and translating them to the workplace. I think there also needs to be a little bit of training um, and something that folks in the second round table emphasized was needing to practice how you spin your skills that you gain from your time away or outside of the workplace to make it appealable to employers. And, you know, uh, hopefully um, these round tables um, and highlighting these experts can, can give some advice that, workers can take, workers and job seekers can take, as well as employers um, and implement them um, in the workforce at large. 
All right. I want to thank you both so much. I am super excited about this initiative. I really am. I think it's great. I love what you're doing. Um, I'm hoping that it's that it's going to drive change as much as you hope it is. Um, and that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me and giving your thoughts and expertise and for sharing information about the initiative. Thanks again for having us. Yes, thank you. This is great. You can learn more about the Hire Initiative by visiting the EEOC's website at www.eeoc.gov slash hiring initiative reimagine equity hire or the DOL's website at www.dol.gov slash agencies slash OFCCP slash hire initiative. You'll also find links to these initiatives on our website at workplaceperspective.com. I also want to thank our listeners, My Radio Angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. I want to thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar.